0: I'm Sterling Fox in just a few moments Stuart Zuckerman founder and senior partner of the Zuckerman Law group returns to take your calls and talk about family law issues and how this time of year can be especially tense and trying for people but first here are some more of the week's top consumer stories we're following the latest numbers from the real estate board of Greater Vancouver are in and they show especially low sales in November there was a 42 percent drop in the number of residential transactions from the city month last year, and the total of just over 1,600 sales last month was the fewest in the board's territory in November since 2008. The November sales were also 35 percent below the 10-year average for the month. Here's how the board explains it. Quote, buyers have been taking a wait-and-see approach for most of 2018. This has allowed the number of homes available for sale in the region to return to more typical historical levels. The market is also being affected by rising interest rates which have also reduced demand for new cars. The Bank of Canada boosted rates in October for the fifth time in less than a year and a half. In addition, tighter mortgage qualification rules have had an impact on the number of first-time buyers who are actually able to purchase homes, and in the last provincial budget, the NDP government expanded the foreign buyers tax beyond Metro Vancouver and increased it from 15 to 20%. These figures apply to most of Metro Vancouver but not White Rock, North Delta, Surrey, or Langley, as those areas are part of the Fraser Valley Real Estate Board, though I doubt their numbers are any different at all. Now, on to the subject of reduced demand for cars. The CEO of Toyota USA told us this week he thinks car sales in North America have nearly bottomed out, and his company will continue to make cars despite a dramatic shift to trucks and SUVs. Car sales dropped below 30% of all sales last month, and Jim Lentz thinks that's about the bottom. We've been reporting on car makers' decisions to reduce or eliminate many models of car from their assembly lines but Toyota's big guy says hey wait a minute consumers are still buying more than 4 million cars each year and there's no way we're going to back away from that across this continent 800,000 fewer cars will be sold this year with almost the same number representing the uptick in truck and SUV sales and as we mentioned in our previous story car sales this year will fall below the numbers during the 2010 financial crisis and that amounts to depression in numbers. Toyota says, "Hey, we're optimistic, we're sticking with the Camry, we're bringing on a new Corolla. Hey, and we're even bringing back the Supra, a model that hasn't been seen since 2002. Health Canada is warning us about the dangers of sodium chlorite after the substance was advertised as a cure-all for several major diseases. This comes after a British Columbia man pleaded guilty to selling the bleaching agent. As miracle mineral solution, which promises to cure cancer, HIV AIDS, and even childhood autism. Health Canada says, of course, that's just not true. Sodium chloride is commonly used as a bleaching agent. And Health Canada says, quote, it can cause poisoning, kidney failure, harm to red blood cells, abdominal pain, and nausea. If you hear of a person Selling Miracle Mineral Solution. Health Canada urges you to report that person to authorities. And again, a reminder, Health Canada has not approved any health product containing sodium chloride. Miracle mineral solution. Sounds like something you see for those old ads in the cowboy movies, for crying out loud. They're still pulling this stuff off in 2018. And the Canadian Food Inspection Agency says one of Eat Smart's packaged salads has been recalled due to possible listeria contamination. The agency says the 156 gram packages of salad shakeups sweet kale with a best before date of December 3rd should be thrown out or returned to the store where it was purchased. The uh, food agency says the recalled product has been distributed nationally. There have been no reported illnesses associated with consuming it. It adds that it's conducting a food safety investigation, which may lead to the recall of other products. Food contaminated with listeria may not look or smell spoiled, but can cause death in severe cases of illness. And the Food Inspection Agency says infected pregnant women may experience only mild flu-like symptoms, but the infection can be quite dangerous for them and their unborn children. Oh, and here's the bulletin you've been waiting for. The Pantone Institute has chosen... Living Coral as the 2019 Color of the Year. This color has a saturated orange base with a golden undertone. And it's said to be warm, welcoming, versatile, and (laughs) life-affirming. Living Coral is the 20th color of the year, and it will replace this year's color, the vivacious ultraviolet. And those are some more of the week's top consumer stories. We'll look at, well, even more later in the hour. But coming right up, the return of Stuart Zuckerman, a Vancouver consumer. Stuart is a family lawyer. And as always, we'll take your calls and questions on all family law matters. Divorce, custody arrangements, division of property, the whole gamut of issues facing couples in crisis. Let's open up the phone lines right now. Why kid around? He's a popular guy. You want a line to talk to a family lawyer? 604 two 280-9898. The board is wide open right now. And Stuart Zuckerman is back. Mr. Zuckerman is the founder and senior partner of the Zuckerman Law Group with offices all over Metro Vancouver. Home base is in Surrey. There is an office right just a few blocks from here down in, in Yaletown. Stuart, good to see
1: you again. It's good to see you too, Sterling. I'm very happy to be here, even on a gloomy afternoon like this the view from your studio is gorgeous you can see the whole city of north shore there's a little the fog over the water it's a beautiful sight
0: now i know you uh your law firm is having your staff christmas party tonight now yep. you're a lawyer so you are uh, above all and your staff would be pretty tuned into uh, these uh, hashtag me too times we live in yes have you had any uh chats with teammates as to behavior at the staff party this year
1: Um. Um, uh, we've been pretty good at our firm. You know, it's funny because I I did in the in the late 80s and 90s I I was in quite a few different downtown firms that had Christmas parties and they really did get out of hand mm-hmm. a lot of um, inappropriate interaction between uh, uh, lawyers and staff and things of that nature mm-hmm. and I, well, I think that was a creature of the 90s it's it's never happened in the uh, in the uh, since i've had my own firm and we've had our parties that's never really been an issue everybody knows to behave themselves and I think I've never had issues with people getting too drunk or or misbehaving in any way we have a pretty good time. I I buy hotel rooms for everybody so they don't have to drive home. Good move. And uh, we've got uh, breakfast in the morning uh, together, and we have a nice dinner tonight in Yelltown. Uh, so uh, we're looking forward to enjoying ourselves and uh, and rela- de-stressing a bit and relaxing because we have a busy practice. You've been a family
0: lawyer for close to thirty years, yeah. And I wonder how many cases, case files, have crossed your desk of individuals who were really out of line at the Christmas party, <laughs> and so so much though that. It's over, buddy.
1: Uh, it definitely has happened. Uh, I've I have had those situations where, you know, infidelity took place at a party, and uh, and that was the uh, the end of the uh, of the marriage. So uh, it does happen. Sure.
0: This is. Uh, we're going to get to the phones here, Darren. Uh, you're up in just a second. Just wanted to briefly touch on this time of year for family lawyers, particularly. I mean, emotions run so high over the holiday season for some. Uh, I mean, it's it's uh, some people are Christmas holics and they just can't wait to get the tree up, and some of them even do it in November. But it, I mean, as as we get closer and closer to the big day, uh, emotions run fairly fairly high. It's a pretty tense time of year in some ways, isn't it? Uh, I
1: I would agree. Uh, I think possibly, you know, people from their own childhood, the nostalgia of whatever went on with their family or sometimes family stress or violence uh, uh, peaked in their childhood uh, at Christmas. So you get people who are on edge or sensitive. And of course, if you have a divided family uh, where one parent has the child some of the time, and the other parent has the child the rest of the time. uh, There's always difficulties at Christmas time. Sometimes young children don't want to leave mom or dad uh, for the other party, even though there's an order or an agreement, and then that parent refuses to give the other parent that kid, and then the parent has to call me to go to court to get an order, to get the police to show up at the home to help transfer the child, it's not, not a pretty sight when that kind of thing happens. And all of
0: this of course is happening at a time when resources are quite limited because most everybody's on yes. vacation.
1: Yeah, so you have that situation at Christmas. The other situation you typically have is people try to hold it together if they're in a relationship that might be breaking down, they hold it together for Christmas, for the kids, etc. And then January 1st, first week of January, we get a flood of calls of people who've made the resolution to leave their spouse and and uh and are, are coming in to end their marriage but they waited till just after christmas to do it interesting it. and is that an annual thing can uh, you pretty much count on it, that happening? it does happen every year for sure interesting stuff
0: uh mention you mentioned the fact that you're coming to the show and the phone's actually been ringing for, for, for quite a while so let's get to the lines right here and we'll start with darren who has been the most patient so far darren thanks for that good afternoon
2: hi good afternoon thanks for taking my call
0: no problem what's up
2: so yeah I, i'm uh recently going through a divorce i have a couple of kids uh that are estranged i'm living in florida and they uh live in the caribbean with their mother and uh she's pretty much cut me off of seeing them uh and she's told them that you know not to say anything to me on you know social media and all i get is uh like i asked the kids oh how are you doing and they're like Give me a smiley face, like an emoji or fine mm. or good. And it's, uh, it's it's just really frustrating.
1: <laughs> it's a sad situation. You know, if you were both in British Columbia, uh, the case law here does, the courts have uh, forced Uh, a parent who is alienating children from the other parent, they have on occasion forced that parent and the children uh, and the the person who's being alienated to participate in a, there's several programs in the Lower Mainland uh, or just outside the Lower Mainland that are based on reconciliation therapy um, where the mother is kind of, or whoever is doing the alienating is trained uh, about the impact of that on the children in the future. Um, And the children have counseling with the alienated uh, parents uh, with a counselor present to help them communicate with each other. And that has been successful in a lot of cases in in restoring uh, communications and then restoring uh parenting time. Uh, but it, it, you know, it's, it's a difficult situation. And of course, if you're in Florida and she's in the Caribbean, n- now you have even more complicated things. Because you have jurisdictional yeah, issues so there even there if too. you Even if you get some order in Florida, I doubt that it's enforceable in the Caribbean and vice versa. So um, if they're in the Caribbean, you'd probably have to go to the Caribbean courts and get orders there for parenting time or to enforce parenting um, or to enforce communications. That kind of thing.
0: But still, uh, it would be worth investigating some of the programs that we have in British Columbia to see if there is even anything resembling that in his own jurisdiction. Yeah,
1: I think if you look up uh, reconciliation programs or parental alienation in your area or in the Caribbean, you might find some kind of programs in those areas that do similar things to what's up here. I I don't know for sure, but it's a possibility.
0: Absolutely. Check it out, Darren. Thank you for that. A little closer to home in Abbotsford. Barry, good afternoon to you.
1: Hi there. Um... When I split up with my ex, we were, I was working. I have since been unable to go back to work, and I didn't get a COLA clause in my, in my support. How expensive is it? Is it very expensive and a big process to add that to, a, to an agreement? Can I just
0: ask you, Barry, before Stuart responds, are you unable to go back to work due to a physical impairment of some kind, or have you just decided, I don't want to work anymore?
1: No, I physically can't
0: work okay. anymore. I right, Just wanted to clarify that.
1: Okay. And and how long were you married? Uh, 28 years. Okay. Um, and uh, your spouse's annual income? Uh, she's uh, on pension, but she's, she gets about 5000 a month. Okay. And so when you say you want a, a COLA clause, do you already have an agreement between you and her about spousal support, or is it a court order? Uh, we have an agreement. Okay, so the law with respect to varying agreements is, is you know, relatively uh, strict. There has to be a uh, material, uh, significant. Uh, unforeseen change in circumstances since the agreement was signed that could not have been tis- anticipated on the date that you signed the agreement, in order to get a court to vary the agreement. So, yeah, um, with the with
0: the inability died. to physically uh, uh, support himself, uh, would that represent yeah, so, so, a cause?
1: So, it, an example here would be um, if you if you had uh, been diagnosed with an illness prior to the separation agreement, and then you entered into the agreement with a, with a fixed amount of. support, um, port, and then subsequent to the agreement, your illness becomes worse, uh, such that your income drops, uh, that the court may say that's something that should have been anticipated at the time that you entered the agreement because you already knew you were diagnosed with that illness. On the other hand, if the illness was diagnosed after the agreement was signed, that's something that you, it may have been impossible for you to predict that sure. you were going to get, you know, cancer or mm-hmm. any other disease, um, and so it's it was it was unforeseen at the time of the agreement, and that could be a basis to vary the uh, the support amount.
0: So it, it sounds like uh, perhaps uh, we should get Barry into one of your offices uh, to follow up on this. Because there may be grounds.
1: Yeah, the, you'd what you'd what you'd want to meet with a family lawyer and have the agreement handy and and have the information about your income at the time of the agreement and hers at the time of the agreement versus now, um, in order for a lawyer to assess the likelihood of being successful in bringing an application to vary that agreement. In terms of yeah. the cost of doing that kind of thing. Um, uh, tip, with a senior lawyer, you're typically looking at about ten to twelve thousand dollars for a day in court. With a junior lawyer, you're looking at something like four to six thousand uh, dollars for a day in court, plus GST and PST. Mm. Um, so uh, those are the typical ranges. They, uh, you know, every case is different. It depends uh, on a number of things. If there, for example, in your case, if there's no existing divorce action or family law action, then one would have to be started. That would add about an extra fifteen hundred bucks uh, to get that started and then there has to be what's called a judicial case conference before you can bring an application that's another 2000 right. bucks so everything can add up uh, unexpectedly depending on what the circumstances are okay yeah and i mean you know the COLA isn't going to be really that much i don't think after all well it's it, been it, done. You, if you were going to go to if you were going to seek to vary i would not be seeking to impose a COLA clause, I would be seeking for an increase in support to reflect whatever the changes are in how much her income has increased since the date of the agreement and how much your income has decreased right. since the date of the agreement. That's what I would be looking at, not, not a COLA clause. Barry, why don't you
0: check out the website? Zuckerman Law, Z-U-K-E-R-M-A-N ZuckermanLaw.ca All the contact points are there. There's an office in downtown Vancouver uh, in uh, in Yaletown. The head, head on, main office is uh, on, on 150 22nd Street in Surrey. Uh, uh, give him a call. Uh, this may very well be worth uh, following up on. And thanks very much for your call. As we go to, we got time to, to, let's talk to Joan in Abbotsford before the news break. Hi, Joan.
2: Hello. Hi, Mr. Zuckerman. Hi, Joan. Yes. I have a question. I was wondering how long after a will is given, uh, given to the parties, do you have to contact, Time to contest it.
1: Uh, well, that's a question about wills and estates, right. uh, and a question about probate. And uh, you can challenge uh, in the probate uh, court. The you can bring an application under the uh, what's called WISA, the uh, Will Estate Succession Act. Uh, you can bring an application to vary a will, um, but it's not really not my area of practice. I haven't studied anything about wills and oh. estates since I was in law school. So mm-hmm. it's been thirty years since I studied that area of law. So I'm not really oh. the person to to answer that so, question.
0: But you are Wondering, Joan, is there is there kind of a, a sort of a set time between the time that the the will a person dies and the will is read, everyone understands yeah, gets there, to know what the heck was there, in that document.
1: There likely is. Uh, there's there's a, a statute of limitations. Yeah, um, that sets time limits for to to bring certain claims, uh, and uh, I suspect there there is a time limit, um, and it may be a relatively short time limit with a will because once the will is approved, the the assets are then you know. Uh, given out to the people who are approved to get under the will. So I would think you probably need to bring that action relatively quickly before the will is uh, probated. Interesting question
0: and completely
1: unexpected for our
0: family law guest, Stuart Zuckerman. Welcome back to the program. I'm Sterling Fox, joined in studio by Stuart Zuckerman, the senior partner and founder of the Zuckerman Law Group. We're talking family law on the radio this afternoon. And if you have a question or are looking for a little free advice, uh, you're, you're, you're welcome to give us a call at 604-280-9898. Again, 604-280-9898. Our first caller in the last half hour, Stuart, brought up the notion of alienation when parents... And some parents do go to rather extreme means mm-hmm. to uh, keep uh, the other parent from interacting on an equal basis yes. with the children despite uh, whatever standing court orders to that effect may exist. That's correct. So how do you get around that? If some person is just ignoring – a court order and say, and especially with the, you mentioned Christmas, you know, uh, it gets even more intense emotionally during these times. So
1: so it's a very, it's a very difficult area of the law, parental alienation. Uh, One thing, the first step that can be done if it's like just like the first time that mom or dad is denying the other parent, uh, refusing to give the kid, you can get what's called a peace officer enforcement clause to enforce the court order and the police will attend at the home of the parent with the children and basically remove the children from the home. And hand them to the dad waiting outside or the, the other parent waiting sure. outside. Um, so that's one step. Uh, the problem when you're talking about alienation is really that, the, that one parent has turned the children against the other parent. Um, and the children themselves will refuse, even if the police are there, they'll just refuse to, you know, they'll hold on to mom or hold sure. on to furniture and refuse to go. Uh, with Dad, because they have a fear of the father based on the things the mother has said, or vice versa because it happens father 's and mother's it works as well. both ways sure uh, there is a, a recent case maybe two years ago I, I was involved in a in a minor way in it um, uh, the decision of justice block that involved a sixteen year old child where uh, the th- who testified at the trial, uh, and the judge found that the father and the father's parents uh, were alienating this child from the mother, and the mother hadn't seen the child in like two years. Oh my! Um, and, since the child was fourteen, and the sixteen-year-old insisted he didn't want to see his mom. Um, but when he testified, the judge was clearly under concluded that that the, the words that he was saying were very similar to the words that the grandparents and the that the, the father and the paternal grandparents were saying, uh, and so that that's a pretty serious witness coaching going yes, on. Yes, yeah. right. and the, the judge ended up ordering them to, the family to participate in, uh, family, uh, counseling, uh, the reconciliation counseling that I told you about earlier, yeah. a program where you kind of, uh, like a camp that you go to that, that, and it focuses for days at a time on, uh, uh with counselors and psychologists helping resolve the issues. And what happened in that case is of the week before the son, the son was supposed to attend that program, he uh, disappeared uh, and they discovered that he had gone to Britain where he had uh, family members in Britain. Uh, and then court orders were made to search the house of the parents and the, the grandparents to find out whether they assisted the child in leaving the country. Oh um, and I think fines were imposed because I think the judge did conclude that the, that the parents and grandparents had assisted in uh, helping the child get to relatives in uh, the UK. So
0: ignoring um, a court order and, and, and uh, going through that uh, process of, of alienating, <laughs> turning the kids against the other parent mm. is a crime in family law.
1: Well, you can be uh, uh, imprisoned for contempt. So if you're found in contempt of a court order that, for example, uh, there's an order to deliver the children to the father on Saturday at 10 a.m., you don't do it. The father could go to court and get a contempt order against the mother. And if the court finds the mother in contempt, usually they, the first thing the judge does is say, I'm going to give you an opportunity to— Clear this contempt by making sure for the next, you know, month, three months that there's no missed access. But if there's even a single more missed access, I will find you in contempt and I will imprison you Mm. or I will fine you. Sure. So there's lots of uh, cases where people have been imprisoned or fined as a result of uh, breaching court orders of that nature.
0: Interesting stuff. And, you know, of all the people, you feel sorry for I tend to reserve my sympathies for the children in these cases well, given yeah. the fact that adults can well they're adults but I kind of would feel sorry for the cops in, in a situation like that yeah. where you're I mean you're doing your duty yes and someone has called you to enforce a quarter that's mm-hmm. what police officers do yeah. but what an awful situation to put a police officer yeah. in
1: yeah, it is a horrible situation for the police and for the child I, I will say one other thing with the fam, our family law act that came into effect in 2013 uh, actually has provisions in it uh, for a $5,000 fine to be imposed for each breach of a court order. Mm. So uh, that is a uh, kind of a stick, uh, a carrot and stick sure. way of uh, getting a party to comply. It's much easier now than it was before 2013 to have fines imposed, and courts do it. Uh, courts do it for uh, failure to make financial disclosure, and courts do it for breach of court orders. mm
0: Uh, Failing to make a financial disclosure is a very elaborate way of saying lying to the court, isn't it? And no court in Canada ever appreciates being lied to.
1: It's omitting, uh, usually omitting some of your savings or your investments from uh, financial disclosure documents. And uh, it's been – there's a case called Kuna and Kuna from I think very early 1980s where our court of appeal said that the the lack of financial disclosure or failing to disclose is is a cancer in family law. Hmm. uh, And courts should take it very seriously. Seriously in terms of uh, imputing income to people who fail to report proper income, or um, or imputing, there's cases where the court uh, uh, will say that uh, they'll give all of the disclosed assets to one spouse and say that the other spouse can keep all the hidden assets, which the court is going to assume is, will assume is worth at least as much as the disclosed assets. So the, the so the spouse who's innocent might get a hundred percent of the equity in the house, a hundred percent of the RRSP savings, etc., and the court will say to the bad person who didn't disclose, right. you can keep all the undisclosed things that you haven't disclosed. And, and I'm going to assume since you didn't disclose them, I'm going to assume they're worth more than what the disclosed items were worth. Ooh, so talk about a, hoisted on your own guitar. Yes, retard, yes huh? that, and that's happened many times.
0: 604-280- 9898 if you want to jump in. I'm bouncing around a little bit. Uh, terminology here sometimes baffling. You talked about varying things, yes. varying a will to our caller and yeah. uh, varying a court order. The word vary in legal term, simply means to change. That's correct. Okay. How about prenuptial and cohabitation agreements? Is that the same thing?
1: Well, they're very similar. A a, a cohabitation agreement would be executed by a couple who are intending to live together or who are, or who are already living together, whereas a, a prenuptial agreement would be executed by a couple who are intending to marry. So that's another word for a prenuptial agreement is a marriage agreement. Okay. Um, and the, But the law respecting both of them is the same. Under the family law, they're given great weight and it's very difficult to vary them. What percentage
0: of people who are either in the prenuptial stages or who are
1: cohabiting actually have one of these arrangements between themselves I wouldn't know what the percentage is I, low um, I, probably low not, I, I think not enough people turn their mind to this before they get married um, or they don't want to have the discussion or it's too too uh, emotionally difficult or mm-hmm. something um, you know, if, if, a, if two people are entering into a relationship and they're both on the exact same footing in terms of their assets and their income, uh, then, you know, maybe it's not as important to have a prenup or a marriage agreement. But if certainly in cases where people are coming into a relationship where one party has way more than the other party, either much higher income or much higher assets, it, it would be in that person's best interest to have a prenuptial or marriage agreement to protect those assets, especially if they have other, let's you know, say so they have children they want to give them to, so In the if, future.
0: If, if you don't have this, now suppose somebody, you've inherited a significant sum of money, yep. and you start living with someone, and you don't have a cohabitation agreement, which acknowledges the fact that you came to this arrangement with this inheritance, yes. and it's yours. Yep. Uh, if you don't have that, after the two, the mandatory two-year term has expired, is the partner that you are now living with, uh, who decides to leave, entitled to half of what you didn't declare as your Yours in the first place.
1: Well, what they entitled, what that partner is entitled to, once you've been a couple for two years or more in a spousal-like relationship, or from the day you marry, if you marry, the two years doesn't apply from marriage. Or the date of marriage, either from the date of marriage or from or from the two, the date that you've been living together for two years, the law is the same, and that is that anything that you brought into the marriage on the day that you began cohabitation right. is yours, and it's excluded from division, but. Any growth in that asset. Uh, so, if you if you received a hundred thousand dollar inheritance um, a year before you married somebody or started living with them, and you invested it, for example, in an RRSP or in the stock market, and mm-hmm. ten years later when you separate, it's worth a million dollars, the court will say, okay, the you get to keep your hundred thousand that you started with, but the nine hundred thousand growth is fifty fifty, ah. unless you have a marriage agreement or a co op agreement that says. This investment is mine, and all growth in the future will continue to be mine, and you won't share in it. Then it's then that will be upheld. Your that will be excluded from uh, from being divided between the parties.
0: Interesting stuff. Now, does this all fall under the general heading again? Terminology is this a property division issue? Yes, then it is. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, and there are formulas now. The courts have it's pretty sophisticated because it happens so frequently when it comes to to the division of property. There, uh, a person can go online and search out uh, these – the the court has a a formula that it
1: uses, and you can find out at least where you might stand. There are formulas for spousal support uh, called the Spousal Support Advisory Guidelines that you can look up online. And there are formulas for child support, the child support guidelines. You can look it up online. Uh, in terms of property, there aren't there aren't really formulas. If if you read the Family Law Act under the sections dealing with property and debt, it will explain how you determine what is excluded and what is not excluded, and that everything else is fifty fifty, unless substantial unfairness establishes that it shouldn't be fifty fifty. Um, but the, the so it's all wording in the act that you could read that would explain it. Not not necessarily a clear cut formula, and and really. Uh, I, will, I would say to anybody out there that has a property or debt division issue that, you it, you know, looking up the act on your own, trying to figure it out is not the best idea. You should really speak to a family law lawyer because each case turns on its own facts. And usually within a half hour consultation, uh, I, you know, some people are amazed when they have these meetings with me or my staff, my other lawyers, they, they walk out saying, oh, I feel so much better now. I know. Where I stand now I understand like like in a half an hour, we can if you give us the facts quickly, you know how long you've been married, how old each of the parties are, what their incomes are, what their assets are, yeah, what their debts are, and how they how they accumulated those assets and debts, we can within half an hour say here 's what we will what what would happen if it went to court. this is how the court would deal with dividing these assets, so you can get answers. Right away in a free consultation oh, it and, is free. and okay. stop worrying about your your legal problems. well that
0: was my next question. How much is what 's the tab for that uh, half hour chat and it turns out it 's zero because right. you, you need to give but you know i 'll bet you a lot of people when they come for that initial consultation with you or one of your colleagues yeah. at the Zuckerman law group i 'll bet you you work through more than the odd box of Kleenex when you 're going through this uh, because some people yeah. <laughs> This is—I mean—it's a surprise. Other people, are, come on—the writing's been on the wall for years. This—we've been going sideways yes. for years. Other people—it's just a bolt out
1: of the out of nowhere, and their life is just absolutely shattered. Absolutely true. And a lot of times in these initial meetings, sometimes I will actually direct the person to. Talk to their family doctor to get a referral to a psychologist or psychiatrist, and get some mental health help first before they come back to me to make decisions about what they're going to do because they're so broken up by what's happened and so shocked that they're really not in a state uh, to make a a wise decision about how to move forward. So I'll say, you know, you really need to get. If I see that the person is that distraught, some counseling would be advised. Get some counseling, or uh, or, and uh, I often say, you know, if you go through your family doctor and get a referral to a psychiatrist, that's free. It's covered by MSP. Whereas if you go to a counselor, you're usually paying 90 bucks, a hundred bucks, 120 bucks an hour. It may be covered by your insurance if you have employment insurance, but if you're just somebody without a job or whatever, then you're going to be paying through the nose for the counseling. So getting it through your doctor and getting a referral to a psychiatrist or psychologist uh, can can be a cheaper way uh, to to deal with those things. And I always say to people, because I become a psychologist often, people come in and they start telling me all these things and I say, you know, I, I don't want to cut you off. I don't want to be rude, but you're paying me four seventy-five an hour plus GST and PST. Uh, you can go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist for free on MSP right. and and uh, get your advice uh, for your mental health issues, so that you're not spending money on a lawyer listening to you and being empathetic and trying to calm you down. I mean, it, that's just not an effective use of your funds. Interesting stuff. Uh, and
0: that initial half-hour consultation is free.
1: At Zuckerman Law Group, yes. Absolutely.
0: Uh, one final question, too, because we're almost out of time. Mobility, we're a pretty mobile society. How difficult it is, is it, Stuart, when one person lives in British Columbia and the former partner moves to Quebec? Yes. And now there's back and forth uh, with uh, 3,000 kilometers between yeah. the two of them.
1: So it's a, uh, mobility cases are some of the hardest cases to predict the outcome of. Uh, there was a study years ago... Uh, uh, where uh, a professor from back in Ontario, uh, who does a lot of family law stuff, studied all the outcomes across Canada on mobility cases, and he's and, we tr- and he tried to find. Like a, a pointer as to what would, what, it, what it, is it because the person has a new job that the court allows the move or is it because the person is remarrying mm-hmm. or is it because the person has family in the other right. place? He looked at all those factors and said there's no factor that can predict the outcome. It's like flipping a coin. It's 50-50 whether the court will allow or disallow the move. There are provisions in the Family Law Act about moving that says when there's a, an informal parenting arrangement in place, The uh, neither parent can just simply disrupt that by moving. They have to give notice to the other parent. I believe it's 60 days notice. And then that other parent has 30 days to bring an application to prevent the move. And then the court will listen to both sides and decide whether the move should proceed or not. Interesting. So you can't just up and take your children and move. If you do that, your partner can go into court and get an order, um, bring essen- you back. Uh, essentially ordering you to bring the child back, or giving sole custody to the person who's left behind, uh, or fines being imposed. All kinds of things can be done uh, if that happens. Interesting stuff. We're fresh out of time. I thank you for yours
0: again. It's great to see you. It's always fun when you come by. Very informative, fast-moving hours. Friends, if you'd like more information about Mr. Zuckerman and his colleagues, the website is ZuckermanLaw.ca. Zuckerman is spelled Z-U-K
1: zuckerman law.ca Have fun at your staff party tonight. Thanks very much to all those people who are going to call us. Call us before your spouse does. That's always important. And uh, I look forward to uh, being of uh, help to them. And I'm glad to uh, be with you here today, Sterling, and look forward to the next time.
0: All right. There's Stuart Zuckerman. And once again, our thanks to Stuart Zuckerman for another informative visit, and thanks for your calls, too. Next week, we'll talk all things shopping with Susie Wall and the nice folks at the Butterball Hotline will join us with a seasonal visit to get us ready and tuned up for the big meal on Christmas Day. Time now for Dooley Noted, and this time, our producer, Ben Dooley, has a look at the need for mandatory carbon monoxide monitors.
2: Thanks, Sterling. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth says the province is exploring what more can be done to get more carbon monoxide alarms installed in homes and buildings, including possible changes to current legislation. There has been a spike in the number of carbon monoxide poisonings in B.C. in recent days. This week, 19 adults and 3 children ended up in the hyperbaric chamber after they were exposed to the odorless, colorless gas. So, a fire chief Len Garris says CO detectors should be mandatory in all homes in both BC and Canada. It's something he and fire chiefs across the province have been pushing for. So far, we're still waiting on that decision. They haven't said no, but they haven't said yes. But we're waiting an awful long time. And as that occurs, we're gonna we're gonna see more and more of these people that are uh, sick from this situation and maybe die. CO exposure kills about 50 Canadians every year, and one alarm manufacturer estimates that carbon monoxide puts between 20,000 and 40,000 North Americans in the hospital annually. I'm Ben Dooley, and that's Dooley Noted.
0: Thanks, Ben. Time for a couple more consumer quickies before we go. The Richmond Oval is celebrating its Community Legacy Day tomorrow by offering free sports challenges and games to Richmond residents. Admission to the Olympic Experience Museum will be free for Richmond people tomorrow between 10 and 5. The museum commemorates rather the 2010 Olympics and achievements by Canadian Olympians and has some fun games like an interactive bobsled ride and reaction time challenges. Olympians Paralympians will also visit during the day to meet and greet and sign autographs. Outside the museum, you can test your strength and cardio at the Law Enforcement Fitness Challenge or Skate with Santa tomorrow afternoon. For a full list of what's happening, visit the Oval website, which is richmondoval.ca. We'll stay on a sporty note for another moment as we congratulate Ladner's James Paxton for being named winner of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame's Tip O'Neill Award as Player of the Year. Nickname Named Big Maple, the six foot four Southpaw, became the first Canadian pitcher to throw a Major League no-hitter on Canadian soil against the Toronto Blue Jays this past May 8th at Rogers Centre. That performance came just six days after he set a Canadian record by striking out 16 batters in May in a start against the Oakland A's. Paxton, who was traded by the Seattle Mariners to the New York Yankees on November 19th, is a first-time winner of the award, the 30-year-old held off strong competition from Cincinnati Reds slugger and seven-time winner Joey Votto, Toronto Blue Jays super prospect Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and St. Louis Cardinals outfielder Tyler O'Neill. Big Maple is going to look terrific in pinstripes. And that is our show for this weekend, produced by Ben Dooley with Andrew Ferreira at the controls. We appreciate your feedback, and if you have any thoughts or comments about the show, please send them along to Sterling at CKNW.com or tweet us at Van. Consumer. I'm Sterling Fox. Join us again next Saturday at 2 for another edition of Vancouver Consumer right here on CKNW. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.